Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hello, hello. I'm Olivia Allen Price, and welcome to Bay Curious, the show that answers listener questions about the San Francisco Bay Area. Let's get right to it and meet this week's question asker. Hi, I'm Jabreya. And I live in Richmond District, San Francisco. Jabrea was working in a theatrical costume shop at Stanford University, where she was going to school. Building clothes on a daily basis for plays, musicals, things like that. This was back in 2020. So you probably know how this story goes next. Boom, the pandemic happens. And not only is no one on campus anymore, but plays are definitely not happening anymore. So we have to... Shift gears. The people in the costume shop began to look a little more in-depth at this hidden-away place at Stanford. Our clothing archive, which holds the really, really old clothes that haven't been digitized. They're in, like, a special place within Stanford. And that's when I came across a lot of dresses that were donated to Stanford that had the label City of Paris. City of Paris. It's a brand she'd never heard of before. She couldn't find too much online about it. Maybe a newspaper clipping here and there, but nothing really concrete. And that led her to ask Bay Curious this question. What was City of Paris and how did the brand fall out of fashion? This week on the show, we are venturing back to the heyday of department stores in San Francisco. And we'll learn about one of the greats that San Franciscans today still remember fondly, despite closing decades ago. If you've ever wondered how San Francisco got the name the Paris of the Pacific, well, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hi there, I'm Randal Delfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. We sent reporter Christopher Beale out to discover what he could learn about the city of Paris for our question asker, Jabrea. In 1850, California had just become part of the United States. 
word had spread worldwide that this new free land had struck gold just a couple of years before. It was actually very exaggerated. I mean, they were making it sound like you got off the ship and you stumbled over a boulder of gold. <laughs> and it wasn't like that. This is Ann Evers' hits. Longtime San Franciscan, writer, editor, project manager. Anne wrote a book called Lost Department Stores of San Francisco. And she says that among those who came from all over the world to strike it rich in California were two brothers from Paris, the Verdiers. The family ran a silk stocking business. Those are basically luxurious pantyhose for wealthy folks. Some people came to California in search of gold. But the Verdiers came to San Francisco with a different idea altogether. The people who made real money made it off the miners, not by finding gold. So the Verdiers loaded up their finest merchandise and crossed the Atlantic Ocean by ship. And they made the dangerous trek across land through the Isthmus of Panama, no small feat. And then they sailed into San Francisco Bay in 1850. Their ship stacked with fine French goods, but they found a city in chaos. They couldn't get a berth. That's a place to unload cargo on shore. But the miners had heard that this ship was in the harbor with all these goods, including a lot of fine alcohol, <laughs> fine liqueurs. And so the miners rowed out in boats and bought everything off the ship before it even got a berth and often paid with gold dust. I want to bring our question asker along for the ride here. Jabrea, the ship the Verdiers arrived in San Francisco aboard was called the Ville de Paris. Do you happen to know what that translates to? City of Paris. Ah. Ville de Paris, yes. You see the connection. <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> After restocking, the Verdiers opened City of Paris dry goods in 1850 on Kearney Street, just a few blocks from Portsmouth Square, which was like the center of San Francisco in those days. And they sold the finest French goods to the upper crust of San Francisco society. Clothing and definitely fine liqueurs, the cognac, the champagne. I mean, City of Paris wasn't just a label or a clothing maker. It was a whole department store. By the 1890s, the Verdier family commissioned an architect, this guy Clinton Day, to build them a flagship store at Stockton and Geary. It was one of the earliest department stores on Union Square. It was a growing city, and so their goods were in demand. Over time, more department stores opened their doors nearby, each with a different niche and a different target audience. I'm Agnon Gumps, which was more decorative items. The White House, they were huge. Maybe it was all marketing, but Union Square was the place to be. City of Paris was a decidedly upscale department store. The city of Paris was all things French to San Franciscans. It was kind of aimed above the middle class. Anything French was considered higher class. Mm -hmm. The French women were just esteemed. So French fashions, I mean, all of a sudden, we were just one ship length away from Paris. The 1906 earthquake and subsequent fire destroyed much of San Francisco. The city of Paris store's exterior survived, but the interior was badly damaged. So the Verdiers took this as an opportunity to have the store redesigned by this architect, Arthur Brown Jr., that's the same architect that designed Coit Tower, 
the San Francisco Opera House, City Hall, and many of those nearby buildings. Through his design, City of Paris took on the form many, including Anne, remember. The store would reopen in 1909. Beaux-Arts decor, really, all these beautiful carvings and stained glass and and mythological figures. It was just very, very decorative. And this renovation is when City of Paris's beautiful four-story rotunda was added. Eight columns supported a beautiful stained glass dome, which allowed sunlight to pour into the center of the store. In the 20s and 30s, if you were of a certain class, you might go downtown shopping for the day and then meet a friend for lunch and hear a concert in one of the stores. They would have quartets or something and then go home. At City of Paris, you'd get top-notch customer service, imported French finery, and you might even run into one of the Verdiers walking the sales floor. Anne says that was a common trait of the immigrant-owned department stores in San Francisco at the time. One of the reasons they were successful and of their era is that their owners were very present. And Paul Verdier was very present. It wasn't a faceless conglomerate. It helped ground these places in the community. And that's way different than just a big chain. City of Paris had a couple of fun quirks, too, like this little themed alley downstairs. It was called Normandy Lane. And Anne says it felt like stepping onto a Parisian street. They had uneven floors, so it really felt like an old French street. And then booths, and they had awnings and things. So it it would have been like being on a narrow street in Paris with the vendors out. So it was like an early-themed environment. Right. Normandy Lane had a variety of things on sale, too. There were shops dedicated to glassware, wine, appetizers, champagne. There was a bar, a buffet, a bookshop, and a photo studio. At Christmas time, Union Square came to life with holiday magic. Starting in 1909, City of Paris was known not for Santa Claus, not for reindeer or holiday sales. They had the 35-foot Christmas tree. Jabrea, I think there's a photo of the Christmas tree in Anne's book there. Oh my goodness. Wow, look at that. Can you describe that Christmas tree photo to me? It's a black and white photo, of course. And it looks like there are three little girls in front. They are like dwarfed in comparison to this gigantic Christmas tree that has all of these like ornate, like almost like crystal looking ornaments on it. And then there's this pretty star at the top and it looks like it's practically like touching the glass of the ceiling. For generations of San Franciscans, the tree was the place to be around the holidays. It was a big deal, and it was decorated with everything from little Santa Clauses to sleds and all sorts of things. I don't think people remember the goods so much. It seems like every Christmas, the Chronicle will go into its archives and bring up these pictures. Putting up the Christmas tree was a lot of fun. In 1970, Ken Sturmer worked at City of Paris. As an assistant window trimmer. He was 20 at the time. In my case, I started as a a window trimmer, but Madame did not like the way I did the windows. So I got demoted, but they kept me. Madame, as in Countess Suzanne de Tessin. 
niece of one of the original Verdier brothers. We did the Christmas windows, which were fun to do, except for the artificial snow, because it got caught in everything, and the Christmas tree. There were pulleys in the dome. As soon as the store closed, they took out the doors on Geary Street. The tree arrived on a truck and was turned around and shoved through the door. Then it was hooked up to the pulleys and lifted up. We climbed up the scaffolding and we just hauled the, the boxes up with the decorations. They, they had them already packed from years before. There were some glass balls and stuff, but not too many. Mostly everything was, was plastic and yellowed and old. Once it was on the tree, once it was up, it, it looked great. And everybody liked it and everybody came in and went, went on. That made you feel good. The department store brought in extra people to help and putting up the tree was like a party. By one o'clock in the morning, I say everybody was either drunk or stoned. That, that was the funny part of decorating the tree. Everybody was celebrating, <laughs> some too much. Over the years, City of Paris, which celebrated 100 years in 1950, opened a number of satellite stores in places like Stonestown, Vallejo, San Mateo, and Marin. But the Union Square store was frozen in time. The whole store was a time capsule. Nothing had been changed. Nothing had been modernized. It looked like something from an old movie set. And by the early 70s, things began to shift in the retail world and in San Francisco. Malls, that's where everybody wanted to go, was the mall. All that parking, our downtown was not doing so well. And so there was this big push to malls. White flight also had an effect on the big retailers in Union Square and along Market Street. City of Paris's clientele was primarily white. It was it was pretty white. Yeah. It was more the way the city was at that point. And obviously things changed as the city changed mm-hmm. too, in a good way. But that's why I think a lot of the stores didn't make it too, is because they weren't able to keep up with the times as much as they could have or should have. There was also a big cultural shift happening for women in the workplace, too. And American women just had less and less time for luxurious, wistful days, relaxing and shopping at Union Square. I'll tell you, I grew up as a worker bee (laughs) and uh, I wasn't spending my days shopping. The descendants of the Verdiers saw the writing on the wall by the early 70s. I think the numbers just were telling them that they needed to stop. And the rise of discount stores chains, lots of chains, the Rosses and the all of that. So I can't say it was any one thing, but they graciously closed. The Verdiers released an eloquent statement in January of 1972 that read, in part, A message to the many good customers, friends, and business associates of City of Paris, and to all of its devoted employees. City of Paris will close its doors in the early spring of 1972. We are solvent. No one can force us to go out of business. We are doing it voluntarily. That isn't the end of the story, by the way. After City of Paris closed in 1972, a few other businesses operated in the building until its new owner, Dallas-based luxury brand Neiman Marcus, decided they wanted a new flagship store in San Francisco. So they tapped postmodernist designer Philip Johnson to build the store where the old City of Paris building stood 
on that plot at Stockton and Geary. And in order for Neiman Marcus to construct the building they planned, the old city of Paris would have to come down. Thank you and au revoir. Preservationists were incensed and it was a really, really big fight. Willie Brown actually represented Neiman Marcus. He would later become San Francisco's mayor. Neiman Marcus said that the building would take too many repairs to get it how they needed it to be. But Neiman Marcus made some concessions. In 1980, the city of Paris building was demolished and replaced by the Neiman Marcus flagship store that's still there to this day. Jabrea, have you seen this? I have seen the Neiman Marcus store. Okay, so what do you think of it? Really, really pretty. That spot is where the City of Paris department store sat. And they actually preserved City of Paris's rotunda. And that glass cutout with the rotunda in it is the rotunda that used to be in the center of the City of Paris department store. Really? So there's actually a piece you can still go visit today. Isn't that cool? Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. I believe they put a restaurant there near the top of it. Yes. Yes. Have you eaten there? Yes. You've eaten there, so you've seen this. Okay, cool. Did you not realize that you were eating under the city of Paris Dome? I did not, no. (laughs) How was the food? (laughs) It's pretty good. (laughs) Jabrea, the piece of clothing you found in the Stanford archive was likely a piece imported by the Verdiers and sold at City of Paris in San Francisco. Oh, wow. That's actually very cool. You know, I thought that this label was probably something that could have been from any part of the country, but to realize, oh no, (laughs) it didn't make it very far when it came to Stanford. Yeah. (laughs) That's so wonderful. So if you find yourself in the Neiman Marcus store in Union Square, don't forget to look up. You'll see a three-masted schooner called the Ville de Paris depicted in stained glass. And if you look really carefully, you can see the, the store's motto. The store's motto displayed under the City of Paris sailing ship and taken from the actual City of Paris. She is tossed by the waves, but never sunk. That was Bay Curious reporter and audio engineer Christopher Beal. Big thanks to Jabrea for asking the question and Raphael Timmons for his voice work in this episode. We are just a few short weeks away from the published date of the Bay Curious book and our launch party slash variety show slash onstage extravaganza. Tickets are still available for the May 2nd event, so grab yours today at kqed.org slash live. I don't want to give too much away, but I will say you'll eat, you'll drink, you'll laugh. And at least I've been looking forward to this for so long that I might cry. Get your tickets before they're gone at kqed.org slash live. I'll see you there. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. The show is produced by Brendan Willard, Amanda Fawn, and Olivia Allen Price. Have a wonderful week. Au revoir. Did I say that right? (laughs) Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. 
Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 